Welcome to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. This is episode number 211, 211 in progress. Uh, I'm joined today uh, with Brendan Maluli, CFP. Hello, how are you doing? We thought we'd take a slightly different approach and run through some of the uh, news headlines that we've seen uh, the last few days and just comment on how this applies to investing, whether it's important, not important, and just our commentary on some of the news of the day. So uh, I know Brendan's got a couple of things lined up. I've got a couple of things lined up. So if you've ever watched Pardon the Interruption, that's kind of the idea that we want to have this rapid fire thing where we talk about different topics. So now, Brendan and I shared a couple of topics before we came in here to record, but I have many more topics that he hasn't seen yet. So he's trying to read upside down on my list that's in front of me. The first thing that, I'm, that I just want to bring up uh, is article in the Wall Street Journal uh, today. Wall Street Journal report on CEO pay compares the uh, the CEO who increased his personal income the most and how the stockholders made out. Oh, was this was this Under Armour? Yeah, <sighs> you wrecked the you wrecked the surprise. Yeah. So yeah, so the best in terms of returns for investors was Amazon. Well, yeah, that, that makes sense over the last year. Uh, and, and, you know, I, th- I think people probably have less issue with things when the stock does well and the CEO gets an increase in pay because yeah. that's what they're incentivized to do. Yeah. But, but also at the same time, I've heard people raise the issue of like, should that even be the metric that CEOs are, are paid based off of? Like we, we tell them that their pay is going to be based off of like increasing their earnings per share or whatever. So they do anything they can, obviously, that being the incentive right. to increase the earnings per share at the cost of yeah. ethics, the company, and sometimes the shareholders even. Uh, There's not- a real danger tying your your chief executive compensation to metrics like that. I think just, just having it be only like one metric like there have to there have to be other measure uh, measures of, of this value too like like just the earnings per share so it's like that's the only thing we care about there's so yeah. many other things like there should be a handful of metrics that you use to analyze uh, a person's performance like that I know that if there were a perfect one it would already exist but these are these are the kind of things people talk about like, yeah it's not un- even what's best for the company and just seeing what shareholders received over the last year, Amazon is up. According to the article, 56%. Uh, Bezos did not take an increase in pay. So he was paid $1.7 million the year before, $1.7 million in this year that they measured. So no increase in pay for him. Stockholders made 56%. But, but, also, but also how much of Amazon stock does Bezos own? Yeah, he right? did okay. So, no, he's totally, he's doing fine. Uh, yeah. That's kind of interesting. He didn't take any kind of a, a pay increase. Yeah. But I mean, he's always been kind of an eccentric uh, leader anyway, in, in terms of what he will and will not do. This was a guy who I think ten years ago, when sixty minutes in, uh, interviewed him, he was driving a Honda Accord, <laughs> and he's like, "What's what's wrong? It's a good car." I always liked. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that this was Bezos. So forgive me if it if it wasn't, but. Uh, they, I think they were talking about the Fire Phone or something, and how yeah. how much of a failure it was. And he was like, "Yeah, it was a total failure, and we're gonna have more total failures just like that one in the future. Maybe maybe even bigger ones. Probably bigger ones." <laughs> I just love that that mentality of like, "Yeah, like, you know, we're we're going to fail, and that's okay." Yeah. 
and it has been okay, yeah, they're obviously. Yeah, failing their way to a success. So uh, speaking of failure, if you want to call it that, at the opposite end of the spectrum, Kevin Plank. Right, that was the premise of the article, right? He yeah. was like the, the picture on there with, with Under Armour. Right. So he Not, got a big increase in pay, and the stock was cut in half, basically. I... I wouldn't want to be his PR guy right now. He's having a tough year. No, bad bad optics, I think. Yeah, the stock is down 50%. His pay is up 100%. So he went from two around $2 million to $4 million. So his pay doubled. Everybody lost money involved. But he's the biggest shareholder in the company, too. So he's he's suffering right alongside it as well. I Like you said, Brendan, I think this uh, is an unfair metric uh, to use. But it sure makes for... For good headlines, yeah. There's there's no good way to sell that disparity in terms of his pay increase and the stock's performance. But also, uh, I mean, stock's performance over one year could it could be complete noise. I yeah. mean, we we know that very well. But uh, and one year yeah. is such a small window. Yeah. So it's it's tough to say. Yeah. Right now looks bad, but I mean, if we're a decade from now and and Under Armour is still you know competing with the likes of nike and adidas and has become a bigger company and and the stock price has translated then who cares right Uh, but it's tough to say now like whether it'll be that or if under armor just like you know goes under or is bought out by somebody else uh we don't know tom maluli is an investment advisor representative with maluli asset management All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. So I saw one um, in the past week that was... The, the title was How the Oil Rally Took Forecasters by Surprise. Okay, so was it Morgan Housel or who was it that, that uh, made that, that quote? I think we all retweeted it. Yeah, um, so I, I actually saw something that, that he uh, wrote today, and uh, he was actually referencing Danny Kahneman, and Kahneman said that the correct lesson uh, from surprises is just that the world is surprising. Yeah. And Morgan was kind of saying that like the, the the problem is that we take surprises or things that we are wrong about and try to learn specific lessons from them. Like like uh, you know, in the in the tech bubble that like internet stocks were bad instead of just recognizing that we need more more room for error. Yeah. So more room for error means like less ego and means like being you know you can still make forecasts but you should be able to recognize that there's a very high probability that you could be wrong or you should at least recognize the probability even if you feel sure about it i think the big takeaway from the tech rack was that eyeballs mean nothing because (laughs) analysts were saying look at the eyeballs the impressions that they're getting Mm. and it turned out to be totally nothing but but those people got the people the naysayers got called idiots for four or five years before that because the fundamentals don't matter. This is the new economy and they were right, but but they were too early. So it's like their forecast may may as well have been wrong for three, four years while these stocks continued to, to skyrocket. Ultimately, they were proved right. Um, but I think the, 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 the macro lesson here, so to speak, is just that forecasting is really hard and that we all need to recognize 
that forecasts don't always come true and that they are just guesses, hopefully educated ones, and that we should leave space to be wrong. So if you're making investments based based upon forecasts, which all of us do, we all have beliefs about the future, regardless of how strongly held or what they're based on, fundamentals, technicals, whatever it is, we're all making forecasts, but we should be able to recognize that we probably need to do something like diversify or have margin for, for error because we're, we're going to be wrong about a bunch of stuff. Right. And we just want to be able to be right enough so that we're not blown up. Right. And I think the, uh, the tweet that we all saw was um, earnings didn't miss estimates. Estimates missed earnings. Right. Yeah. That and that's true. Right. Yeah. Kind of went off on a tangent there, but but Morgan did say that too. So one of the bigger stories this week in the news has been uh, what's going on in the emerging markets and the U.S. dollar. Off of the lows, which which were back in February, the dollar is now up like five or six percent on the year. It's up like one or two percent. But when you see uh, reversals of trend in currency like the dollar, you start hearing a lot about uh, what is and is not correlated with the dollar, what what this move in the dollar is going to mean. It's it's tough to say sometimes because it depends on over what time frame. Sure. So, you know, like a, a move in the dollar over two to three months, like what we're seeing now, can be meaningless. Yeah. Uh, like it may or may not impact U.S. or international stocks. Um, not sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the headlines that we that we saw the last few days was how global growth is stumbling in 2018. But we only have numbers through April, right? If that, they're all going to be revised. Yeah, we'll we'll change the story in October if if uh, performance has improved, right? Right. It's, so it's all you know the performance driving the narrative. But yeah, we're looking at the rearview mirror now. I think at the beginning of the year, uh, I'm not sure. I didn't see very many people predicting that the dollar trend was going to reverse. And even if they did, uh, you could look at a year like like 2016. So most people would say, if the dollar's going up, that's bad for emerging market stocks, right? Like that's that's sure. a pretty well-known correlation. In a year like 2016, we saw you know the dollar up, uh, I think somewhere in the realm of five or 6% on the year. And emerging market stocks were up 10% that year ahead of large right. cap US stocks, S&P 500, uh, developed markets. So great. So the, take take so your the correlations the and throw them out the window. The like, story didn't fit the narrative right. again. Right. So it's it's good to know what is going to drive correlations because these, these things tend to be true generally over longer stretches of time. Uh, so you can construct a portfolio that works that way. So like if you're looking at the dollar today, and you have a diversified portfolio, something that might be helped over the long term by a move up in the dollar could be like small cap U.S. stocks. Great. Right. We have some exposure there. Right. So that's good. Maybe the emerging market stocks aren't, aren't doing as well because of a move in the dollar. Okay, we have some exposure there too. And when that trend reverses, then emerging markets are going to lift us in a falling dollar environment. And you know the the small cap stocks are are gonna lag a little bit. It's also uh, I, I can't think of a clever analogy, but it seems like when a group moves into favor, we start getting a lot of calls from people saying, "Gee, I see everyone's talking about oil. Don't you think we should have oil?" Well, y you should have had it by now. Uh, or, "Gee, everybody's moving into bonds. Don't you think we should have some bonds?" Well, we should have had it, or you should have had it. By now, what, what you're actually asking with that question, uh, or what what you're saying basically, is that you want six months ago bonds, right? Right. I mean, like you're you're saying, like, can we go back in time? Yeah, and and we can't. Yeah. So if there are things that we think 
belong in our portfolio, we should be analyzing them regardless of the situation that's going on. So like, we don't care whatever direction oil is going in. Like we, we obviously know it can go up and down and it's going to do that over the time that we own it. What would be the thesis for having this in the portfolio? What, what purpose does it serve and what, what reason, what's our reasoning for owning it? It's a good thing we have that flux capacitor though. Yeah, just we can in go case, back in know, time. We can hop yeah. back in time. It'll be good. So I did pick up a couple of little tidbits uh, about what's going on in Argentina. Inflation right now is running at 20%. Yeah. We are freaking out in the United States about whether inflation will be 2% or 2 and a quarter percent. Argentina, the inflation rate over the last 12 months is 20%. Uh, the central bank last week raised their rates to 40%, 40 percent and one of the arguments was yeah but only 15 percent of their imports in argentina come from the u.s so why should a rising dollar hurt them what i found was 88 percent of imports are actually invoiced in u.s dollars so practically everything coming in is being paid out in dollars may not come from the u.s but that's the method of payment so a rising dollar is going to really hurt them uh, something else I think a little more closer to home is that uh, short-term bond funds in the last month, in, in the month of March, uh, pulled in $168 billion. Uh, right, so these are, these are like one to three-year bonds. Correct. Yeah. So, And this is short-term bond funds, meaning short-term bond mutual funds and short-term ETFs. So people are worried about having too much duration in a rising interest rate environment. Right. So longer bonds are going to be hit the hardest uh, as interest rates are rising. And, and we've seen that. Things like the 30-year T-bond, uh, you know, the price has to come down more to justify a change in interest rates. And taking on the time that you're going to be tied up in a 20- or 30-year investment. Sure, sure. So, Opportunity cost. Right. So the price is, is definitely going to be moving. But- This kind of leads to another discussion that we have with clients a lot about bond funds versus individual bonds. So one of the big discussions is, hey, if we own bonds, interest rates can go up, down, sideways. I know that at some point in the future, I'm going to get back at maturity. I'm going to get back my original investment. That's better than being in a bond fund where they're constantly flipping over the bonds in the portfolio. What's your take on that. Yeah, I I don't agree. So one of the big issues I have with that argument is first off that when we see interest rates go up, it usually means that there has been some kind of inflation in the economy. So when you're getting your nominal dollars back from your individual bond purchase in the future, um, they're, they're worth less. So like, yeah, you're getting your $1,000 face value back on the bond at maturity, but it's not worth $1,000 anymore because of inflation. Right. And so... People uh, miss that. Yeah. Also, why are we owning the bonds? Because if you're owning... So I, I could see a case being made for lining up uh, a need in the future. Like, you know, your kid's going to college in 10 years. So you buy a 10-year bond and you know exactly what you're going to have 10 years from now. Great. Most people don't own bonds for reasons like that. They own them constantly in their portfolio. They want constant exposure to some degree because they're using them uh, to offset the the stock risk. They're using right. it to diversify. In that case, you're going to take your, your dollars that you get at the end of the, the bond terms and roll it into a new bond, which y- you could have done at any point over you know the 
the life of that bond itself. Right. Um, that's exactly what a bond fund does for you, actually. Right. So, well, so you know, they're picking up the additional yield as yeah. you go further along. So you're gonna when rates are going up, you're gonna take initial losses uh, in the short term for the first year or two. If this is like a constant rising rate environment, uh, you're gonna you're gonna take initial losses as the interest rate moves happen. But as that portfolio of bonds uh, has issues coming due, they're rolling over into new bonds with higher yield payments. And those higher yield payments are eventually making up for the principal losses that you took along the way. Right. So you start coming out, you know, break even positive, even in a rising rate environment, and you're doing it at a very low cost, right. um, which you are not going to do owning individual bonds. Well, we've been saying all along, I, before we walked into the room to record, Brendan and I have both said this on different videos and podcasts that bonds trade by appointment. And that's something that we're going to get to in a later podcast as well. So it's important to understand that the value you see on your statement may not accurately reflect what the bond is worth today. Yeah. And so applying this whole idea that you just laid out towards short-term bond funds, if you've invested in a short-term bond fund and they own things that come due in six months, 12 months, 18 months, two years, they're going to be very quickly capturing higher and higher yields. So those short-term bond funds are going to reflect a lot faster increases in rates. Right. I also, part of me, and this is just silly contrarianism i have nothing to back this up but like if people are going to the short end of the duration spectrum it almost leads me to believe that like this risk is overblown and that people like are are going to regret this like they have for the last you know i mean rates have been rising now for a year and a half or so but like before that you heard for a decade how like interest rates had to come up and like they had to come up and they had to come up meanwhile people who just hung out in their bond funds and let them do their job were perfectly fine and and made good money doing it like it so i don't know i I'm, time will tell if if people are making the right call or not but uh yeah i i would agree that you know in a, in a shorter term bond fund you're going to see the the benefit of higher interest rate payments uh come quicker than a bond fund that's average average maturity is 30 years okay so a couple of Quick questions before before we wrap things up. Yesterday, the Mets traded Matt Harvey for Devin Mesoraco. Your take on this? Good riddance. <laughs> if if he can turn around his career, then then good for him. Uh, it was it was time to let him go. Okay. Uh, it's also been announced that the Yankees are going to be playing the Red Sox next year in London. Your thoughts? I I don't like these these changes from baseball trying to cater to like the uh, the average like person like they're they're turning away like real fans of the game with stuff like uh it's like watching baseball on facebook yeah yeah like i don't want to do that i just want to watch baseball and i don't want like a pitch clock and i don't care how long games take like or how many visits mound visits like i yeah. don't care i just want to watch the game that i love and yeah. i feel like they're you know forsaking the uh true baseball lovers to try to grab the marginal fan and i don't care about those people i care about me <laughs> Last uh, question for episode 211, 211 in progress. Uh, how many browser tabs do you have open right now? Uh, not sure, but if I'm going on the average, probably like 8 to 10. 8 to 10, you're slacking today. So yeah. I have 21 <laughs> open right now. So uh, that's it for episode 211. Thanks for tuning in, and we have a lot more to talk about in episode 212.